You are listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. CMU is in Winnipeg, Manitoba on Treaty 1 territory. I'm your host, Jonas Cornelson, in Calgary, Alberta, Treaty 7. But the best conversation I ever had, it was having a beer with a billionaire. Well, that sounds fun. That's James Magnus Johnston, an instructor at CMU. You'll hear more from James in just a minute. Now, I'm not a billionaire, but if you're somewhere comfortable and want to grab a drink of any kind, you can have a pint with a podcaster. This is the last episode in our So What About Climate series, and it's a special one. I wanted to take a look at what CMU faculty and alumni are doing on climate right now. So rather than covering a past CMU event, I actually interviewed two people just for this episode. I don't care how many CMU events you've been to, you've never heard this stuff. These conversations brought the climate crisis into everyday life. How we manage our lives when we know not enough is being done. That's where James comes in. James is doing PhD research on how ecological breakdown affects people's daily lives and decisions. James often says ecological breakdown in place of climate change simply because what's happening to the planet is about more than gases in the atmosphere. You'll hear me speaking with James and I'll also be here in narrator mode to keep the flow going. To start, James will introduce himself and then give the elevator pitch for his research at McGill University. Yeah, I'm James Magnus Johnston. I, uh, I'm an instructor uh, in political studies and business, and uh, right now the director of the Center for Resilience, um, and a PhD student at McGill. The elevator pitch is, um, I want to find a way to both witness and articulate um, the ways that collectively we're moving through ecological breakdown. And, and that's on a fairly personal level, right? You're talking to individuals kind of about their dreams and day-to-day -day lives. Exactly. You know, there was a piece on CBC News this morning in which the interviewer, you know, was asking somebody uh, under the age of 20, you know, uh, what their goals were. And, and one of the responses was like, well, I don't understand why I'm getting a degree mm. when, when these things are happening. And those are the kinds of things that come up. Uh, when I speak with individuals, you know, what they're doing might be at odds with uh, their hopes and fears, particularly mm. their fears. I didn't really know why I was getting a degree at 20 either, but that probably had more to do with my lack of career ambition at the time. Though I have also felt deep uncertainty over how I should set up my life with the earth in crisis mode. James picked up on this topic because he has found the most honest conversations don't happen in classrooms or conferences, but when you go to the bar after. And so that happened with my PhD co cohort in, in Montreal. I mean, we went to a bar one day and everybody's talking about all the things that they're going to do to manage their, you know, their lives going forward with, you know, because they're steeped in this knowledge and these ideas. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, this is a real conversation because on paper, just like it had been for me, we're writing papers about law and policy and well thought through, um, well mathematized, you know, ways of, of dealing with this without, you know, destroying the economy in some way. And, and yet, you know, there's sort of this knowledge that, well, I mean, that's really important, but ultimately it's not really working or it's not going to work. So here's how I'm really going to, you know, here, here's how I'm really going to orient my life. Well, if that's how the future PhDs are feeling, I feel justified in my uncertainty. 
Some of these plans include off-the-grid survival, but many are just trying to live a regular life with some integrity despite being in a society that's not doing enough. I asked James about ways of coping with this reality. Yeah. Uh, how do you keep living? How do you keep interacting with, I mean, I'm going to use the word institutions because, I mean, each of us does that, whether that's a workplace or, you know, it's, it's, it's school or whatever. What do we demand of these places? What do we demand of ourselves? So there's, so there's, there's this base level of hypocrisy that we have to just sort of live with, right? So it, then it becomes how we handle our, our responses to this. We, we will deny it, uh, we will get anxious about it, and or we will have experienced something terrible in relation to the way things are breaking down, or be aware of it, and hold some kind of trauma about that, but have nowhere to sort of, you know, process that collective emotional grief or trauma. In our last episode, we talked about ecological grief and how feeling our feelings, not pushing them aside, is how we move toward healing. James is talking about trauma in a similar way, and focusing on how it's something we share. And then the trauma piece is interesting to me because it's about how we, how we narrate after witnessing. So we see something, it hurts us in some way, or it devastates us in some way, and then we have to somehow process it. And the irony about that is that it is both an individual experience as well as a very deeply collective experience. That's what I think is so fascinating about it. And we just went through that with the pandemic. It was a, an inherently individual experience, but at the same time, it was, a, it was a collective experience that will, you know, over the years to come, we'll start to tell ourselves stories about, right? It, it has to lead to a way that we can talk, that we can create stories about this that acknowledge the difficulty um, but move us in the direction of, 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 of managing it either on a, a personal basis or collectively in some way. Because as I say, if we don't find good ways of doing that, um, that's where we'll find breakdown in social cohesion, mm -hmm. uh, where people will start pointing fingers at one another. And right now it's the rich, right? The, 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 and I'm saying this is sort of a, trying to say this is like a <laughs> neutral academic, right? But, but there's, you know, who do you blame for this? Well, somebody, and it's probably them, you know? Um, so, so I think there's a real danger in not finding ways to sort of get to, get to, um, uh, you know, uh, ways of processing this that are, that are, uh, that are real and practical and reasonable. Um, but yeah, but, but acknowledge the nuance of the difficulty. James's call for nuance here is related to some personal experiences, talking with people that had a surprising level of interest in climate solutions compared with what we might assume about those people but the best conversation i ever had it was having a beer with a billionaire and that billionaire was really interested in hearing from some people who were you know really geeking out on this stuff and 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 wanted to make it happen and get more ecological economics into universities and then we might be able to make a dent in the kinds of problems we've created for ourselves and he, you know this is someone who's who's sort of the, sort of the ultimate hypocrite in a way and is also the person that we often blame for these problems is also the kind of person you wouldn't think is interested in an ideology that could, you know, that would have us consume and produce less. And yet he was very concerned and spent his leisure time in nature, foraging, you know, close to home, uh, wanting to know how to sort of deal with the grief and guilt that he carried about, you know, the way his lifestyle sort of propelled him to, uh, to live. So that, so this theme of sort of like deep interest on the one hand on possible solutions and yet sort of living in a, in a way that doesn't illustrate, you know, your ability or interest in, in making that transition to something else is something we all have to do just in different, different ways. 
I love this story because it reminds me to be curious. This guy wasn't exactly a Greenpeace vegan wearing recycled plaid. Despite appearances, people might care more than we think. Probably the best way to find out is to ask. The other thing this story reminds me is that everybody's trying to figure out what their life should look like in the face of ecological breakdown, while also trying to manage the rest of life. And James and I talked about this too. So that whole piece about how we manage our understanding of, of ecological breakdown in spite of the mul multitudes, the multiplicity of, of life's uh, ridiculousness, sort of throwing mm -hmm. things at us on a day-to-day -day basis is really, um, that's part of the study. It's sort of how, where does it get slotted in, right? Mm -hmm. um, even though it's kind of omnipresent, it's kind of there all the time. Yeah, where, where, where does it get slotted in? I mean, so far, as far as I can tell, everywhere. Like, like when I ask about, you know, I wondered at first if it was day-to-day -day lives, day-to-day -day choices or big hopes and dreams, uh, you know, is it one versus the other? Like day-to-day -day life, I don't really think about it. I go to work and, you know, blah, blah, blah. and then, you know, but sometimes I, you know, I come home and I think about these big problems and then I shut it out for a while. Um, but from what I can tell, the, the folks that I've been, that I've engaged with so far are sort of telling me that it's, it's, that it, it's both. You know, speaking with one individual, for instance, who uh, who gave up on the idea of living in, in the interior of BC. It's like, this is just going to burn. I have to get out of here. I don't want my kid to be surrounded by mm -hmm. fiery summers for the rest of his life. So back to Winnipeg. So those are the big things. But it's also like, that's also everyday life. You know, yeah. that's also like, mm -hmm. you know, he's thinking about his kid's life every single day and what he's going to witness, what he's going to live through. This part really got me. Because I've had so many conversations with people around my age about whether we should even have kids. We're all making tough decisions. As I close my interview with James, we went back to stories and how stories can create a culture that values joy using fewer material resources. This can be grounding, but it means we have to both do it and talk about it. Well, and, and make stories together, right? We're, making, we're, we're trying to make a culture here, a material culture that is. But, but not just a material culture. It's just that, uh, you know, it, it just so happens that if we say, if we say we're going to orient our lives around having, you know, around stepping lightly or lighter footprints or living uh, more simply, that's a bit of an anchor. But uh, it, then, then, you know, we also have to make sure we don't obsess about it and just live through it in ways that are, that are satisfying and joyful, right? And how we articulate a culture of joy in spite, again, through the hypocrisy, in spite of, you know, what's being witnessed is... Uh, yeah, you know, it's going to be a very interesting challenge. It's going to be an increasing challenge, I think, as things start to sort of change more acutely. Change is coming, change is here, and our stories need to change too. I appreciate James taking the time to chat with me about the work he's doing. We've already spent some time talking about day-to-day -day life in a world that is simply not where it needs to be on climate. My next guest shared about what it means for her to care about climate change, maybe even be a climate activist, while maintaining balance and self-care. Anna Bigland Pritchard graduated from CMU in 2015. I met her when we were both students there, and I have benefited from her thoughtfulness in many conversations, not least this one. Hi, my name is Anna Bigland Pritchard and I am a soprano, singer-songwriter, expressive arts therapy student and social media manager working in Lekongan territory, uh, otherwise known as Victoria, BC. My pronouns are she, her, but they is also fine. 
And uh, another piece of the work that I do is collaborating with organizations like Kairos to work on uh, their project for the love of creation. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me, Anna. And that project you just mentioned is right where I want to start, uh, both as a plug and as a conversation starter. You have produced right. this beautiful resource called Self-Care as Creation Care. It's a contemplative journal. And I noticed one of the journal prompts begins with this affirmation, I am not alone in my desire to care for the earth. And that's so powerful, but it also probably suggests that sometimes we do feel alone in, in our feelings and emotions. Have you ever mm -hmm. felt alone worrying about the climate crisis? Absolutely, I have. I think especially, I, I grew up in England until I was 12 and then we moved to rural Saskatchewan. And my dad is an environmental activist. So I was always aware of what was going on. But in the community I lived in as a teenager, um, you know, lots of people still didn't even believe in climate change. Uh, and I was a very angry student. I maybe spent uh, a lot of time alienating myself. I knew more than the science teachers, of course. So I just made sure they knew that <laughs> whenever mm -hmm. possible. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've kind of had an awareness of what's going on with climate more or less your whole life. At what point do you remember starting to really feel like, oh, this is bad? Hmm. I think there have been a few different points where that's become clear to me. One was really recently, a few months ago, I started reading a book that really highlighted and pointed out uh, what an oh no situation this is, but also gave hope. Uh, the book is called Under the Sky We Make. It's by uh, Kimberly Nicholas. I've also read that, highly recommend. Uh, it's so good. I, I remember just listening to that and then messaging my dad and remarking that uh, it's so much better to know exactly what a rough situation we are in rather than just speculating anxiously because then i don't know even even an uncomfortable truth an unfortunate truth there we go i guess is more helpful for taking action and i've been informed or given the wisdom before that the opposite of depression is purpose so finding some kind of purpose that counteracts the depression or resistance that you feel is something that i value and so I have been seeking out ways to be purposeful in with the skills and the gifts that I have. I know I can't save the whole world, but if I can do little things more and more, woohoo. And I think traditionally I would always have thought of an activist as someone who is on the front lines yelling at a rally or tying themselves to industry vehicles or something like that. And those things always <laughs> frightened me, but I have others that I can offer too. I can do, you know, I can create self-care uh, workbooks or lead mindfulness workshops and support in lots of different areas. Pausing for a moment. I found Anna's story so relatable here because I too have never chained myself to a piece of heavy industry equipment. Much of what I do and what brings me joy isn't obviously climate action. I asked Anna how she understands her passion for music and art in light of her concern for the climate. I used to wrestle with that so much. I thought it was so vain and shallow of me to want to be a musician and that really I should just go, I don't know, save the environment by myself somehow. Tie yourself <laughs> to a tree, that, but yeah. you're scared, yeah. 
Yeah, I was thinking about environmental studies when I was finishing high school, but I chose to go the music route just because honestly, I went to visit CMU and I was in love immediately. It felt like God was <laughs> putting a spotlight on me and singing like, ah, come here. So I thought, well, I couldn't ignore that. Quick disclaimer, CMU did not ask Anna to say these things, but it's a great testimonial. Yeah, so I found myself studying music and studying it because I believe, I believed deeply that pursuing what brings you the greatest bliss uh, will bring you closer to the divine. And so I just went along with that, but kind of felt like it made me very busy and it wasn't allowing me to be more connected to climate justice stuff other than just spending a lot of time feeling angry and sad about it or just mm -hmm. talking on social media about it. But today I find that they're super connected at a very basic level, my artistic practices give me energy and nourishment and support to move through life, which I imagine is a good idea for anyone facing frustrating challenges. And it's not like a huge part of my work is, you know, environmental <laughs> justice. I, I'm by no means uh, even a halftime activist, but I think uh, for people who feel a lot as well, like myself, it's so important to have creative practices that nourish and ground you mm -hmm. and give you energy. And then I also think art is such an important way for us to reach each other, uh, to share the message of goodness and hope and connection that we have. This ties in with what James said, that we have to make new stories in order to make a new culture. And art is how we do that. As Anna says, art can also strengthen our bonds with ecological relatives. And then on another level, I find it a fun way to connect with nature, just in my personal relationship with the rest of nature, of which I am a part, for I am an animal here on this rock hurtling mm -hmm. through space. Um, but, you know, sometimes I just like to go sing for the chickens who live in my back garden, and that feels just as valuable as singing Haydn's oratorios with an orchestra yeah you you talk a lot about kind of following what what gives you the most life and using that as sort of a, a way of spreading life in in the world and 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 goodness if you talk to other other people who are who are worried about climate change and maybe wanting to take action but don't know where to start what, what would be something you'd say well you should take my self-care as creation care contemplative journal what a great starting point it is it really of, is <laughs> i tried to design it so that it would work well for someone who was burnt out from doing climate activist work but also i designed it to be really good for someone who's just trying to dip their toes in that was kind of my main focus because i know that what holds a lot of people back is an uncertainty about how the right way to proceed is, or if what they do is even valuable or important or gonna change anything. Something like this workbook exists to help people start to examine their relationship with nature. And it's also designed to not induce shame. <laughs> I think the shame piece is also what pulls people away from wanting to do climate justice work, even just the inner work on themselves because they're scared of getting it wrong or getting yelled at for having a car or eating meat or something. And so this, this uh, workbook starts on focusing about 
gratitude, about acknowledging and noticing the land that you're on. I imagine a base of gratitude would be a far healthier starting point than a, than a base of shame and guilt. Yeah, I find it is for me. Mm-hmm. Guilt is so crippling for me. Yeah, I've definitely felt a lot of paralyzing shame about the climate crisis. Like I haven't solved enough. I remember being very upset when I realized that I had spent so much time focusing on something as pithy as music. And Mm. there were people younger than me taking it all so much more seriously. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, normal and natural to experience shame or sorrow around those kinds of things. But you gotta, you gotta feel it and flow through it and move on to something purposeful and actionable. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point in spending life wallowing around feeling sorry for ourselves? That's not productive or fun. And it's not going to solve anything, right? As, as you it's said, not gonna it's not going to solve anything. Yeah. It doesn't even feel good. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, good. You know, if so, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck for what to do with all your big feelings about climate, Anna Bigland Pritchard has a resource for you. So there's my bit of advertising. We will put links to where you can find more information on Anna's work and James's research in the description that goes with this episode. Thanks very much to Anna for speaking with me, and to James as well. I hope you've been inspired by these conversations. No matter how much guilt we feel, none of us can solve climate change by ourselves. But each of us can do a little bit. Try to experiment with one or two things you can do to live more simply in the next week or month or year. And make stories about it. Tell people. Tell me. As always, you can get in touch on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find past and future episodes on all major podcast platforms. I'm Jonas Cornelson. I'll be back in January with a new series for a new year. Talk to you then. <laughs>